Thespians Bar Post podcast. We are into the thick of it. <laughs> at the Olympics now and we have another preview episode coming at you today. Before each game we've enlisted the help of some experts from New Zealand, Sweden and the US to help us get acquainted with our opponents. So today it's the USA. So in addition to me, Marissa Lodanik, it's Sam Lewis, Anna Harrington, Angela Christian Wilkes and we have women's soccer writer from The Athletic, Steph Yang, joining us. So Steph, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Now, first of all, we need to say that we are recording this after match day one and before match day two. But I think we also need to say, what time is it currently where you are? Uh, it's 3.08 a.m. <laughs> so obviously we are very grateful that you have decided to <laughs> jump on and talk with us. And we genuinely are going to somehow shout you a coffee because you need it, to be honest. But it, to get yeah, started, it's all good. <laughs> but to get started with the preview proper, we'll kind of, take it back to go forward. So we've asked all our guests about kind of the last 18 months for their respective teams, kind of what the results have been and what the feeling was heading into the Olympics. So what was the kind of vibe around the US women's national team pre-Olympics? Um, maybe confidence bordering on hubris, but like hindsight is obviously 2020. So before I would have said it was earned confidence and now I'm like, well, maybe it was what they needed. Steph, well, I guess, like, the big one is you cop the massive loss to yeah. Sweden. It's happened. We've all seen it. The rest of the world seemed to really enjoy it. How has the reaction been? Has it been sort of like nuclear fallout, everyone going over the top? Has it been measured? Like, what have the responses been? I think... Um, it might depend on how much you've watched this team over the years and maybe what level of detachment you have. I think you guys have noticed maybe like the more you cover sports, the more maybe you're able to detach a little bit from it. Um, you just kind of have to. And so I've definitely seen a fairly measured response from media, actually, or at least the people I know have been like, okay, it's not good, but it's fixable. Like nothing in, the, in that game that happened was a mystery. Like Black Anasi can use his eyes to see what happened. It, it, the only mystery actually might be Lindsay Horan just did media with U.S. soccer like two hours ago. Um, and, you know, she got questions about what what happened. You guys looked like you were jet lagged, like you had just flown to Japan the night before. What happened? And she's like, she literally said, like, yeah, we talked about it in the team, but we couldn't put our finger on it quite. Black Anasi said pretty much the same thing at that press conference. Like they didn't look like the team I'd known. Maybe they do know what happened internally, but they're for sure not sharing it with us publicly. Um, yeah, so, but I think on the fan side, a couple of people are slamming the panic button because they are so used to seeing the W. And um, I'm like, you know what? This is a good lesson for you. So what happened, Steph, from your perspective? If you analyze this game, what went wrong? Well, tactically, Sweden won the battle. I think you guys saw like, they won. They have such a strong uh, right side in attacking. And, you know, I think it was a combo of that and knowing they wanted to keep Crystal Dunn pinned back when the United States is cycling out at the back. They are usually looking to Lindsay Horan to start or Crystal Dunn as someone who can make the flank play or underlap. She can do it all. She can come centrally, everything. And they were like, well, maybe we should stop that from happening as soon as possible. And it worked. Um, I think Lindsay Horan got exposed a little bit at not having had the most stringent experience at the six, Kosovar Aslani 
absolutely dominated all the space in between the lines. Like if you've seen a heat map of her, it's just like a bar in front of the front four. It's incredible. So yeah, and then like we said, the ineffable, like what happened and the team mentality wasn't there. Just like normally this is a team that is like an 11 out of 10, right? That intense person where you're like, ooh, like we're at a party, mate. Can you like take it down a little bit? And they're like, no, I'm, they're always at an 11 out of 10. And this one, they were like three, four out of 10. So that's probably a little bit, um, a little harder to fix, but at the same time, so sorry to New Zealand. That was actually going to be my question, I suppose. What are you anticipating for this New Zealand game? Is it going to be like 15 out of 10, do you think? Uh, I mean, you guys watched Australia and New Zealand, right? And that 2-1 scoreline, I think, is kind of flatters New Zealand a little bit. Australia, a little bit more on, they could have had, what, three, four or five goals out of this. Um, I see a lot of nodding heads. You're like, yeah, Sam Kerr could have gotten that, you know, hat trick and everything. But, you know, New Zealand's defense didn't look great. They've got tons of veterans back there. They've got Abby Erseg and Allie Riley, not people who are new to even the Olympic scene, but, you know, they haven't been together as a team in how long. On the Lindsay Horan thing, Steph, we knew that Julia had a big question mark over coming into these games, barely played. She played obviously a bit, was introduced in that game. What has been the vibe around that? Like, to me, it just seems insane that you don't have a, a real like for like, not you can never have a like for like for Julia, but a proper defensive midfielder there as an option when Julia has been such a crucial part of this lineup. Like, clearly, Lindsay Horan has done okay in these lead up games, but what, you know, who else could have been in contention? What were the other options? Because it just seems weird that it seems like it's Ertz and then Haran and then Haran didn't work. I think and when we were talking about um, the lineup, everyone was like, well, if we're talking about positional flexibility, Emily Sonnet is maybe somebody, but I thought it was telling that like, so Julie Ertz was on a minutes restriction. Blacko Ananofsky just said it in the press conference earlier. Um, he said she was cleared for 45 minutes, no more. And, um, you know, they're kind of trying to ease her back in. So she did look better than everybody else on the field intensity wise. I mean, if we're not, not necessarily tactically, but if they were at a three or four, Julie was the only one who's like at a five or a six in intensity, which is on the low side for her. But yeah, Emily Sonnet is probably another one, but you know, based on that game and, and previously and Sonnet's someone who's mostly played in the back line recently, that seems like a real break glass and kind of emergency kind of sick situation. So yeah, I think positionally the United States did get exposed a little bit there. Is, is there just no one else? Because I, I know at the World Cup squad two years ago, like obviously Ali Long was in the picture then as a, a backup option. And I think McCall Zaboni just fell short then. It's obviously two years on, but like there isn't a hard and fast, you know, break glass six if Juliet's is rock. It, it just seems <laughs> very odd to me that you, you have to pull one of yeah, the young yeah. extra attacking midfielders away. Well, they could have done something maybe which was flip Sam Mewis into that position and ask her to be more defensive-minded because Lindsay Horan's values and, you know, starting the play and the higher up you get her on the field, you know, the, maybe you're eliminating an entire line of contention that she has to deal with before she can play the ball in and take a shot herself. So that might have been one thing. Maybe you could have adjusted the formation because Sweden was sometimes putting two defensive midfielders back there that was like... So they were getting uh, big numbers up everywhere they went. 
Um, they were doing a lot of overloads on that right side. So maybe there could have been like a formational change for them to adjust. I don't know. I, I don't envy, like, I'm not, <laughs> I, I don't envy Vlatko, like any coach, because I'm like, yeah, we on the, as fans and media can watch me like, oh, he should do this. He should do that. But, you know, when you're in it, maybe it's not quite so crystal, crystal clear, or maybe it should be right. He's that's his job. So maybe it should be crystal clear. I don't know. In the review episode that we did of the Australia New Zealand game, we touched very briefly on the result uh, between the USA and Sweden. And one of the comments that I made was, it was sort of just a passing thought, but it was about the USA's preparation games in the lead up to the Olympics. One of the things that Football Australia really emphasised was trying to get the Matildas to play against top quality opposition much more regularly in order to benchmark themselves and to understand what it was that they would have to compete against coming into tournaments like this. Do you feel similarly about the USA's sort of road to Tokyo? Because there were a bunch of games there that were sort of against teams that weren't at the same sort of top five caliber, I guess, that the USA would hope to be playing against at the pointy end of this tournament. Is that maybe coming back to bite you a little bit? Uh, possibly. I mean, so in 2021, I would say the com- opponents they played that maybe would have been more preparatory would be like Canada, possibly Brazil. Obviously we played Sweden. We had a one, one tie away. They did those two away games in, in Europe. So Sweden and France, um, and those were useful, but they were in April. So I think there is something to that about the level of preparation games and maybe a false sense of security, but on the same, on the flip side, like it's so hard to do load management and like tapering and, and peaking at the right time for a tournament, uh, especially with all the extra load because of COVID precautions. So uh, I don't want to try to figure out exactly like what weight to assign that, but I don't think it's zero. Um, you mentioned that the, the job of a coach is a very hard one. Um, and I think it would have been hard to avoid the criticism from the US fandom towards Jill Ellis. But I'm wondering from your perspective, how are things going with Flacco? Do people like him? Is this also, I suppose this will be his first big test as well. Are there are a lot of expectations around that um, within the, I guess the fan community and the media as well. Oh yeah, there, there's huge expectations. It doesn't matter who the coach is. Like, you know, they've taught people to expect the best at all times and they do it of themselves, which sounds exhausting quite frankly, but that's why they won a world cup. And I did not, um, there, yeah, there's huge expectation. I think the general feeling towards Vladko and Anoski though, is that he's earned some benefit of the doubt, um, both tactically and in terms of the players have, you know, the way they've spoken about him since he came on as coach seems to indicate at least a certain level of respect, if not like, I think some players do quite like him. Becky Sauerbrunn seems to like Vlatko, which makes sense, you know, coming from a club. So I, I think there's some leeway here, especially if they go through the rest of group, like all I, I, it's, it's sad to say, but if they do score like five or six on New Zealand, I think some people might let that wash away the sins against Sweden, even though it shouldn't, but you know, Americans, we love, we love a winner. So this is a very clumsy segue. But speaking of winners, Tony Gustafsson <laughs> is his first time playing the US since leaving as a 
you know, Olympic champion, dual World Cup champion as, a, as mm-hmm. an assistant. What is the feeling towards Tony? It seemed like he was loved when he was there. What is the feeling towards Tony? And what are the expectations? Um, the, my perception, obviously, being very far outside the locker room is, you know, players didn't mind Tony at the very least. Um, there have been suggestions about the divide in the tactical load between him and Jill Ellis that Jill Ellis herself has spoken about and how they divide up, you know, defense and forwards and stuff like that. And that maybe Jill puts on balance, maybe more energy towards managing personnel, locker room management, Um, you know, that, but that's just a sense. It's not, you know, I'm not behind the scenes. I'm not in the training room. I think people are actually much more interested in Tony because of Australia's, I'm sorry to bring it up, but like recent shocking results, because if you don't pay attention to the Australian national team program as an American fan, all you see is like a couple of years ago, these guys felt like such a major threat to us. And then they went and got scored on 10 times in two games in Europe. So what happened? What happened? It didn't seem like things changed all that much if you're not closely observing the team as an American, which I'm sure like outsiders with the Americans against Sweden, they're like, what happened? We thought you guys were fine. So it's an interesting, another interesting parallel, Steph, there where I think there's a very similar sort of myopia that happens in Australian sport media when it comes to the Matildas. Like when we underperformed at the Women's World Cup in 2019, a lot of journalists back here were like, what? What? This team is meant to be like a World Cup contender. And so similarly, coming into this Olympics, people like gold medal contenders. But those of us who've been paying attention to the Matildas and their recent results over the last sort of 18 to 24 months were like, mm, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious from an American perspective, is there, is there a divide between football media and mainstream sport media when it comes to I guess with the U.S. Women's National Team, it's a very different story, right? Because you are serial winners. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's a huge divide in terms of expectations because I, I actually think they line up fairly well, even if it's not necessarily for the same reasons. But, you know, if somebody is number one long enough, it's fair to expect as an outsider that they're going to still be number one, barring some crazy thing happening so I think that lines up the biggest difference I see actually between people who aren't really regulars and I'm sure you guys see this as well whenever there's a big tournament the people who don't regularly cover the team kind of parachute in they ask uh, repetitive questions and then after the games are over they're gone so that's kind of actually the biggest difference there's a lot of like what does it mean to you to have little girls looking up to you during the Olympics kind of questions and it's like well all right literally the same with us Sam Kerr how good that you're an Olympian again uh but literally it is that sort of stuff but what what's the expectations and you mentioned that probably people not watching Australia would have been a bit shocked taken aback by our early results what are the expectations for this game because we're always pretty competitive against America we have obviously just that one win but we know pre-2019 World Cup, there was that really entertaining end-to-end game. We were meant to play the USA in this last calendar year. Is there a feeling of expectation? Like even pre-tournament, were you expecting to cruise past us or are you always expecting something tough with us? I think even if you were paying attention to Australia as an American fan, up until those European friendlies, there was a sense of like, oh, are they going to pull it together? And then those score lines were just so shocking 
I'm sorry to keep bringing it up, but if they really were like quite shocking that people were like, well, maybe Sweden really will be just the hardest one in group and Australia is not going to be a gimme. That's for certain. Um, but you know, maybe it's, it's something to fret about less, but I don't super want to put that energy out there because I'm superstitious. And if I commit to that too confidently, I am going to look like a jackass and be, you know, if they do lose, they're going to lose by like four and then like Sam Kerr brace, she's going to do her little black flip and then it's going to be all my fault. I was going to say, can we peg in the, the Sam Kerr backflip celebration? She does love scoring on Americans and especially Becky Sauber. We know this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just well, I mean, my, my, my sort of feeling about the, the game that we've got coming up against the US is that because largely our starting 11 have played in and against Americans for a while, right? Like playing in the NWSL, they're familiar with the kinds of players, the kinds of athleticism that, you know, those that the US team largely embody. So do you feel like that sort of gives us an edge because we have experience against the US at club level? Yeah, absolutely. You've got Tony. You've got a bunch of players who understand American tactics and mentality and who can easily point to like, oh, she's going to really try to cut you in half in midfield, literally. Or like, this is someone who like you can kind of, uh, this is a good target for pressing or, you know, we need to overload on this side, this and that and that. So, yeah, I, I think it does, familiarity does breed an advantage. And that is kind of one of the pitfalls of being such a widely covered team which is it's much easier to scout um but you know the I'm, I'm sure no team would rather be laboring in in mystery i'm sure they would all prefer to be widely covered and therefore easily easier to scout so steph we saw so many of the australians used to play in the nwsl now it's really just chloe legazzo and a couple of the contracted but not playing there i know when some of those aussies were moving you could see there was a a few NWSL followers clearly were a bit slighted by it, just a little bit, that the best league in the world, their quote, not mine, was being uh, left deserted by Australians. Like, is there, like, what has been the reaction to that? Because clearly there was a big shift for Australians to move to Europe to try different football. For some players, they needed a different league. What has the reaction been to that? Um, yeah, every time more than two players leave NWSL everyone's like is this the death of the league so I don't think it was necessarily particular to Australians because when like Kristen Press and Tobin Heath and Alex Morgan and everyone went to England um people started panicking then too even though you know we were deep in the middle of COVID and I think most of us were like maybe you should consider the context of what's going on globally yeah um and fans of this league love to hit the panic button because honestly, we've been traumatized in the past. So every little thing that goes wrong, you anxiety spiral. And I think the league is probably going to have to be like 15, 20 years old before they stop doing that, even then. Um, and I, But I, I think once it started getting out there that like part of it was due to just had the absolutely crushing scheduling that was starting to see that uptick in injuries in the Matilda squad, like they were noticing it. So that made sense. People do love the worst case scenario because sometimes you, you know, anxiety spiral doesn't respond to common sense. But I think in general, people kind of 
been like, oh, okay, it's fine. It's just our yearly panic. Does it feel like it's going to be a good net result in the end? Because I spoke to Chloe Legazzo not long after she moved to Kansas City, and it feels like the longer seasons in Europe and then just the, the chance coming about of the Challenge Cup has then, it feels like those sort of situations have combined and you've now got still an NWSL season plus the Challenge Cup. So you're now actually going to have all those players get the games they need, if that makes sense. Like, has that actually turned into a net positive for the NWSL because you're now got, not going to lose players who are looking for that continuity? Uh, it might vary by club. Different clubs have different resources and different abilities to pull players in as needed. I mean, if you're the rain, maybe you have different needs in Kansas City. Um, although it, it's not an end of result podcast. So I'll just kind of fast forward past personal thoughts on what the rain are doing. But uh, I mean, I'm sure all the players are benefiting because a longer season helps all of them. Although we, we did see today the NWSL Players Association announcing um, there are no more side hustles initiative. They are currently in the middle of CBA negotiations with the league. So I'm sure this, you know, if they can get public image on their side, that'll help. Um, yeah, and players are coming out talking about how even up until now, they, they clean houses, they wait tables, they do side gigs like photography. So yeah, longer season, hopefully will be matched with higher salary. And then you have a nine, 10 month season. Yeah. Speaking of side hustles, I think we could probably include the W league in that <laughs> bracket. Uh, we know that a lot of Americans have come down to Australia in that off season to try and maintain their football and their fitness. Uh, every time we ask an American player, what do you think of the W league? They're like, Oh, it's great. I love it here. I love Australia, but you know, they're obviously just pumping us up because they're contracted here. They don't want to piss anybody off. But from your perspective, Steph, how is the W League actually seen to Americans? Is it basically just a holiday? I think it depends possibly on which W League team you end up at partially. Some of them do have bigger reputations in the United States just through sheer, like, brand presence, you know? Um, some of them just are just are more well-known than others. I do think sometimes there's a perception that it's a vacation league for the players. Like you get to go to sunny Australia during the Northern hemisphere winter. You're getting paid for a couple months. You can do a little surfing, play some games, hang out with Australians. Always a good time, you know, um, play a little goon of fortune, go home. But uh, on the other hand, like, I, I don't think it's some, um, I don't think it's a massive level of disrespect. I think fans do also appreciate like it's a league that's putting in the work it's existed for a while now. And it's like in the, in, they would see it the way they would see any domestic league as being like, we can appreciate any domestic league that's working to better the foundation for, you know, women's football in the country. I suppose as well, so you mentioned earlier, there's some, significant developments off the field in terms of creating the NWSL as a more, I guess, comprehensive league and a, and a better league for the players to be in. Um, I have one serious question, one not so serious question here. Um, I suppose, do you see the W League sort of becoming irrelevant in that picture for NWSL players because it used to be that sort of thing in terms of providing continuity and getting paid, as Sam said? And also, does anyone in America talk about how Adelaide United made Abby Dahlkemper, who she is now? Because I feel like it's just me and 
um, friend of the Tom, friend of the Tom, friend of the pod, Tom Bell, who bring that up at every occasion. But I'd be interested to actually know if there's any discussion around that sort of development. Emily saw that too. She went to yeah. CBC. Um, so and Peter played like two games here once, so yeah. we can claim her as well. Chris, Christy Muir's so. Canva, right? Um, Lou Barnes has uh, had a little moment there. Yeah, I think specific to Abby Dahlkemper, maybe Adelaide doesn't come up in conversation a bunch. I think North Carolina overshadows a lot of things. So sorry about that, Adelaide fans. But in terms of W League, becoming irrelevant to NWSL players, if minimum pay goes up, to kind of match the longer season. Yeah, I think it is going to become less and less consideration because first of all, if you have like two months of off season, it's not worth it for you to go all the way down there and then you're playing how many games because you have to acclimate. So maybe you're actually going to be able to play for like a six week window. And I don't know if Australian teams on there and either are going to think it's worth it to import some American for what, three to five, maybe six games maximum, and then they're out of there again. Um, yeah, I I sadly do think that that collaboration is probably coming to an end, although hopefully for good reasons, at least on the end of Brussels side, because everyone's getting paid enough to not have to do that. I'm going to throw back to the Olympics, Steph. Uh, after this loss to Sweden, what, what do you expect in terms of response from the U.S. women's national team throughout this tournament? Like, do you just engage, do they just engage the kill switch? Like, does it, is it like you just made them angry and they're going to steam, steamroll everyone now? Or do you think it is actually, a, there's some weak points here and it, it might be a lot harder than people thought? Little column A, little column B. I do think we're kind of waiting to see what the response is against New Zealand. Like if they come out of the gate angry, we'll be like, okay, they flipped the switch. Um Tierna Davidson did a, a press conference night before last, although night and day mean nothing to me anymore, <laughs> um, where she talked about, I think Kelly O'Hara told the team, we have to be more ruthless. And then, you know, they're bringing out words like ruthless. So once again, sorry to New Zealand if that ends up being the case, but yeah. And like, how many players is this the last hurrah for Steph? Because I know that the calendar changing with COVID seems to have seen, I think for a lot of, say, veterans that maybe Australia or New Zealand, they'll look to go on to the World Cup in 2023. But when you're looking at the cycle, do you see it ending here and some will pull the pin or will they all try and get through to 2023? What's the general vibe? I just assume Carly Lloyd's just going until someone literally, like, doesn't let her on a plane. It is interesting you bring up Lloyd straight away because, you know, before she did a lot of press for this tournament, I would have been like, oh, you're trying to get me in trouble with Carly Lloyd. Um, but by her own words, it's so interesting. She's been talking to press before this and she, she keeps circling around how she's ready for the next phase of her life. Like she points out that it won't be because of fitness, which fair, um, it'll, it'll be because I'm ready for the new thing. And she said something interesting to me, which was basically, she's kind of tired of wondering every day when she steps out of her house, am I going to get injured? Um, and she's been doing that grind for 17 years where she like carefully monitors her diet. She gets religiously into the ice baths where, you know, she's so heavily regimented her life to be the best. And yeah, that's a young woman's game. 
you know, that's the kind of thing that appeals to you. Maybe you're 25, 26, Carly Lloyd's turning 39, I think during the tournament. And she's talked about, you know, I want to start a family with my husband. I want to spend more time with my family. Like, I don't know if you guys follow that, but she reconciled with her family after a pretty contentious split that she talked about in her biography. So yeah, Carly Lloyd is one where actually maybe, particularly if the Americans do well, she'll feel like, okay, I've done the things that I want to do and it's okay for me to leave. The other older players, obviously people like Becky Sauerbrunn, Megan Rapinoe, I could see this being the last one for Rapinoe. She's engaged, if not already married and seems ready to kind of take the next step. She's got kind of one foot into the business world that a lot of female players get into after this. Becky Sauerbrunn, physically, she looks fine. Um, And even if she doesn't do national team anymore, which I'm not betting on, she'll definitely probably do club for a while at least and be at the highest level she was not going to look like a retirement player basically so and just where do you see the matildas finishing we've got to ask this i think we have to ask this of everyone we asked mia from sweden like uh-huh where do you see the matildas landing well we like what's that soon or do we make it a fair way what's your like emotional goal here harrow <laughs> that you're like do you is is this where you just like, are you friendship is the, on the line? Is what are you in the here. feeling stage? Are you solution oriented about this? Like, is this one of those things where you just validate someone's emotions instead of trying to like dissect things? Or Steph, you know, I'm very much like a puppy and I'll just bounce back very quickly, regardless. So it's okay. You might hurt their feelings, but I'll be like, oh, yeah. Uh, what, what else? <laughs> you really painted a bleak picture of somebody being mean to a puppy and the puppy like not understanding because it's dog and just still craving like human validation that's that's much, the picture yeah. that you just painted yeah this is almost worse now yeah yeah exactly i i feel really mean now <laughs> but um, genuinely like where do you where do you see us landing Steph? because we mentioned before there's the the dramatic australia is going to win gold golden girls and then there's the I guess the pessimistic stage. You uh, looking at it from an outsider's perspective, where do you see us realistically landing? I, after the second game, I think more will become clear if Sam Kerr can get some more help in the scoring department. Like if that can really pick up, not just here and there. I could see Australia making it interesting for second place in group. I think Sweden may end up coming out tops. I don't see anybody else in this group particularly troubling troubling them. So, yeah, I think Australia, if they peak at the right time in the tournament, because that's been a legitimate question for the United States, like where the hell are they emotionally? But if Australia can peak at the right time, they will make second place in group interesting. And then from there, it's just chaos. I suppose as well, um, so the U.S., people have brought up that they've had a slow start at tournaments before. So emotionally where are you at are you still hopeful is the gold still on the line I think no one doubts the U.S. I think they're going to come back but I'm interested in what you so um early days at NWSL I was a fan of a losing team called the Boston Breakers and then they died and so it kind of um smothered the spark of life inside of me And these days I'm just very emotionally detached a lot of the times from soccer. Like I still get really excited about it, but I'm really guarded now against being vulnerable. And in order to truly love, you have to be vulnerable, uh, not to be too deep about it. (laughs) 
you you have to go into things being willing to like not be afraid of getting hurt again and mm, we kind of closed that door for a while so in terms of uh hopes for the united states you know and and the slow start and everything i'm just kind of like eh, it's fine it is what it is they'll either win or they won't and if they don't then you know uh, in some ways sometimes it feels like fans they just want to dissect the negative more than they want to root for the positive once again that anxiety spiral speaking so i don't know i i I hope they progress i like all these players or most of them i like vlaco they seem like nice people but like i said in some in some crucial ways i am dead inside pod title right there yeah Steph, thank you so much for jumping on. We've had an absolute ball talking to you. And, yeah, we will obviously share some links so people can follow your work over at The Athletic and keep up to date with all of that stuff. But, yeah, thank you so much for for getting up, not even getting up, for just being awake at this time and talking to us. No problem. Thanks for letting me ramble Americanly for, like, an hour. We loved it. It was excellent. And thank you for tuning in. Remember, we're on ESPN.com.au and the ESPN app. You can find us on Spotify, Google and Apple. Remember to subscribe wherever you do listen to the pod so that you can get the episodes right into your feed. And if you like it, leave us a review. Um, If you want to chat to us about anything from this pod or anything from the Olympics, really, we're at the Far Post pod on all social media. But until next time, go Tillies and see us.